All right, we are in Revelation chapter 22. We are going to finish the book of Revelation this morning. Praise the Lord. It's a hard book to teach. It's a hard book to listen to. It's awesome, but it really is. It's, it's a difficult book to teach. These last chapters are really easy. Um, you all know that chapters and verses are not part of the divine inspired word of God. They've been added by men to, to help us find addresses quickly. So even yes, last week where we stopped in Revelation 21, finished the chapter, there is no chapter break and the description continues. We're going to read through these first five verses and and complete this description that's being given because then the rest of chapter, chapter 22 really kind of shifts into the idea of, well, now, now what do I do with all this information? So, Revelation 22 says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What in the world does that mean? And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him favorite promise in the Bible. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Again, so this is, this is ending this description of the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem that began at the beginning of chapter 21 that we looked at last week and all the, the descriptions that we have both of God and of this place and us as his people in his presence for all eternity. And the description continues here, this pure river of water of life. And this is one of those, this is one of the prophetic examples that it's hard to sit in is in the Old Testament, there are prophecies specifically in Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47 seems to be related to the, what we define as the millennial temple, so this thousand-year period of time that Jesus is going to reign on this planet. It talks about this river of water proceeding from his throne in that temple. And here in the description in Revelation 21, we are told that in the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem, there is no longer a temple. There's not the temple structure, a temple facility. We are told that God the Father and God the Son are the temple of heaven. There is no temple. He is the temple. But from his throne is still this description of this river of water of life. I bring this up to say there's a, there's a lot of prophecies, there's a lot of promises about the future that, it, that it's really vague, where we have to sit there and say, I think that this is what it looks like. I think that this is what's being described. Because again, we have very clear prophecies of this river that's going to proceed from the current Jerusalem, and that it's going to heal the waters of the Dead Sea. There's no life in the Dead Sea in, in Israel right now. 
when fresh water is going to proceed from the temple of God in the future, that fresh water is going to heal those waters and there's going to be life in it. So our understanding, again, is that that's going to be during the millennium reign, but at the same time, here's this description of a river flowing from the eternal throne of God where there is no temple. Also in this description last week, I didn't really touch on it, but it says that there's not going to be a sea any longer. So our understanding is that there will not be the oceans. But here you have a river of water proceeding from the throne of God. Where does the water go? A lake. So again, our, our understanding of what this new earth and the new Jerusalem is going to look like and be like, it really, our, our imagination is quite limited and it's going to be very different than this current structure. We sat in the description that the, the cube of the new Jerusalem, its length, its width, and its height is 1,500 miles. What kind of supporting structure, I mean, what, what kind of mass, with what, you know, the volume of that structure, how much would it weigh? 1,500 miles high, cubed. What would that, what would that weigh? What, what would the size of the, the new earth need to be to support that kind of weight? Do you start to get the understanding? Again, when I say we just understand a little bit, we're just scratching on the surface of this, of this description. So we are told, especially as we sit in these end chapters of Revelation, they're, they're bookends to the entire word of God. You have in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creating the heavens and the earth. And in chapter 3, you have the fall. You have the entry of sin and you have the entry of death. These final chapters of Revelation, you have God dealing with death and sin and casting death and Hades into the lake of fire. There will be no more sin. We just read there will be no more curse. And you have a new creation. The old creation is done away with. And here's this bookend at the end of Revelation of God is going to make all things new. But in that, those bookends, there's a continuity of the descriptions. So in Genesis, we are told that God created this tree called the tree of life. We are told out of the Garden of Eden flowed a river and it broke off into four different branches. So the future, it's the exact same thing from the presence of God, from his position of sovereignty, from his position of king, from his position of God, from his position of power and authority and ruling and all that he represents, he is the source of what is called this river of water of life. And this, this description of water throughout the Bible is always in ref reference to the Holy Spirit, always. But we sit in a culture where we can go to a tap and just turn on the water and get fresh water anytime we want, right? So the imagery is lost on us. Sit in a culture that does not have access to clean, pure, crystal clear water. I mean, how refreshing is that to us? So you sit in a culture, and again, this area of the world, it's, it's very empty of fresh water. Water is extremely valuable. We all know that water is a necessity for life. But here, God is the source of our life, 
And we are told that in the future, in this new heaven, the new earth, new Jerusalem, we are going to be drinking and we are going to be eating and whatever that looks like. But the source and the satisfaction of the thirst that we have, the thirst that God has given to us, is going to be satisfied from his throne, from his presence for all eternity. There's a physical description there, and there's a relational description there that's going on. Same thing with the tree of life. So Adam and Eve were told that they could freely eat of any tree in the garden, but not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They chose to disobey God, entry of disobedience, sin, and death, and the misery of Genesis 3, and the misery of humanity that has occurred since, and then the hope that we have in Christ, right? But in that garden, they neglected the tree of life. When God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, the purpose of driving them out from his presence and driving them out from the garden, it is specifically stated that the way to the tree of life was restricted. The reason our understanding is because if Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of this tree of life, that they would live for all eternity in the state of sin. So God restricted that, gave the promise and the the illustration of sacrifice as God sacrificed an animal, clothed Adam and Eve in the skin of an animal, restricted this access from the tree of life, and what does God give us access to in the future? The tree of life. We're told that this tree is going to bear its fruit. It's going to make. Its product is going to be an individual fruit every month for the 12 months, which is kind of weird because now we're told that there's going to be a counting of time in all eternity. If this tree is going to bear 12 fruits every single month, there's months and years that are going to be counted for all eternity based upon the product of this tree of life. We're going to be eating. And again, is it a singular tree? It's on on both sides. How how wide's the road? So, you know, commentators sit in different descriptions. It's going to be a massive singular tree where its roots are underneath the water and it's growing on both sides of the river of life, maybe. Might be a forest of trees of life. That's another idea, maybe. Regardless of what it looks like, For all of us who will be in heaven, it's going to be food. And it's going to bear our food in its month, every single month, for all eternity. Praise the Lord. It's never going to get boring. It's never going to get old. It's going to be glorious. But then we're given this description that its leaves are for the healing of the nations. And really, what... We're told that God has already done away with death. There's not going to be sorrow. There's not going to be pain. There's not going to be death. So why are we told that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of nations? Don't know. How about that? There is not going to be sickness. There is not going to be pain. The Greek word is where we get the English word for therapy, therapeutic from. So there's a sense of that these leaves are for the, that they're health-giving, that they'll be for the health of the nations. Earlier on, we are told that all the nations of the earth, that they're going to bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. So a lot of this, it's all of the saved, all of the glory of mankind, those who have bent the knee to Jesus from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. As we enter into the kingdom, we are bringing in all the glory of man that's just reflecting the glory of God. That's our understanding of that description. And the same thing, we have already been healed in this eternal state. So that's an idea that it's just, it's sitting in a, a, 
an already done action of God, or at the same time, there's, there's an ongoing therapeutic activity of whatever we're going to do with these leaves, whether we're eating them or rubbing them or... I, was, I, was, I just had a total check from the Holy Spirit. I love it when that happens. Do not say that. That was great. Um, <laughs> now you know how my mind works. The rest of you know what it's like to have a Holy Spirit collar on? Holy Spirit filter? You know what that's like? Praise God. All right, so here we have this description of the water of life, the tree of life, this emphasis that there will be no more curse. You go, you go and sit in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, there is, a, there is a necessity and a demand to know and understand what Genesis 3 is communicating and what it means that Adam and Eve sinned against God by disobedience, what it means that they were exposed to their nakedness and what was just broken in their relationship with God, what it means that death entered into the world because of their sin, and God's response to the serpent and to Eve and to Adam all revolve around this word of a curse. The original intention of God for the serpent, for the Satan, devil, God, God created him for and them, angels, for a specific purpose, disobedience and brokenness. And because of their, his specific deception, there was a specific curse that God gave to the animal that Satan possessed at that moment and his own consequences of his sin. There's a specific curse that is given to Eve in regards to childbearing and in regards to her relationship with Adam. Kate and Luke, you guys just got married, what, a month ago? Have you had a fight yet? Have you had an argument, a disagreement? Have you withheld your tongue? She really irritated you and you didn't say anything. Maybe. I got I to gotta point them out. For those of you who are married, married, there's each one of us, we have our brokenness, right? We have our sin. There's, there's a, there's a curse that has damaged our relationship with one another as spouses. We need to continually follow Jesus, lay our minds and our hearts down before Jesus, pray for our spouses, look for Jesus to lead us in victory in those relationships, and the relationship is absolutely wonderful. I have a great marriage. Yet, we've had, we've had lots of fights, lots of disagreements, lots of irritations, constant forgiveness, right? There's, there's this constant communication, but that brokenness of that relationship between husband and wife is the result of the curse. The brokenness of relationship between siblings, we watch Cain kill Abel. It's the result of the curse. Broken relationships between parents and children. We watch all of this brokenness that finds its foundation there in disobedience to God in Genesis 3. And here at the very end, the bookend, we are told that there is no more curse. We are going to be in perfect, beautiful, holy, majestic, godly unity for all eternity. We will never have any backbiting. There will never be any gossip. We will be perfect 
perfect in our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in our God for all eternity as we image him to one another and as we image God back to him. This statement that there will be no more curse is huge. Look at what our God did on the cross as he died for our sins, became sin, became the curse for us so that we could be recreated in his image. There will be no more curse. Future. How about now? Makes all things new now. If you're in Jesus, you were not cursed. You were favored. You were blessed. You were approved. You were loved. You were holy. We have this now. The God of my past, the God of my future, the God of my present. Amen. The throne of God and of the Lamb, you're going to be in it, in this new Jerusalem. His slaves shall serve him. Do you like being called the slave of God? I love it. I was created for him, I was created to serve him. I was created to do what he instructs me to do. Whatever that may be, I am his. I am a creature. I am owned by him. He has bought me with his blood. But again, this is, this is where you know, we have to do away with every single human representation of what slavery is in humanity and look at what a perfect, subordinate, submissive, submissive relationship with the Almighty God looks like. And the only example that we have of that is Jesus the Son in perfect submission to God the Father. We, we see that in his deity all throughout the word of God, and we see the son's submission to the father as Jesus stepped into human flesh and he only performed the will of his father perfectly. Jesus is the only example of what it means to be a perfect, holy, wonderful servant of God. And again, this is, this is doing away with the curse. The ground was cursed, right? So as Adam and Eve are tilling away and dealing with thorns and, and working for bread and for food by the sweat of their brow, this service in the future to God, it will be absolutely wonderful and perfect and exactly what God has created you for and exactly where he'll plant you in his kingdom for all eternity. It's, it's an incredible promise of love. It's an incredible promise of relationship. And it's, a, it's, it's this idea, too. You will never be bored in your relationship and your activity in heaven. It's not going to be monotonous. The glory of it will crescendo for all eternity. Our imaginations fizzle. I mean, it, it's, like, it's like a spark compared to the forest fire of what heaven will be like. Uh, the, just, the, again, my imagination, again, I told you last week, it's like stick figures, so I can only go so far. His servants will serve him. I mentioned it earlier, verse 4, one of the, I, I, I love this promise. Exodus 33, you have Moses and his relationship with God. He's already had the, you know, the burning bush experience. God specifically calling him and sending him to Pharaoh to go and deliver his children out of slavery. 
Moses has had incredible interactions with the Almighty God. He has seen God. He has stood still and watched the deliverance of God as the Red Sea parted and the nation of Israel passed through on dry ground. He has watched the children of Israel repetitiously uh, rebel, even though they all just witnessed the glory of God and his power and his deliverance. There's this repetition, stiff-necked, you know, the flesh that he works out of all of us. We watch that in, in Exodus. When Moses goes up to spend a specific 40 days and 40 nights with God, as God writes the Ten Commandments on stone with his own finger, the nation of Israel, the children of Israel, are down at the foot of this mountain, questioning where Moses just went and creating their own idols, turning to idolatry just that fast. And a gross idolatry, too. Perverse idolatry is the description that's going on. Moses comes down in anger. He casts these Ten Commandments down on the ground, and they break. You see God telling Moses, you know what, Moses? Let's just kill them all, and we'll start a new nation with you. And that wasn't God's heart, but the severity of what was going on is what God is exposing. And we watch Moses intercede. We watch him beg God for forgiveness for his people. So it's a beautiful picture. And at the end of all this is in this interaction, Moses asks, God, I want to see you. Again, this is Moses, where we're told in Exodus, like he's having conversations with God, as, like face-to-face with a friend is the description that we have. So we don't know exactly what that means, but here we have Moses yearning to see the face of God. And God very specifically says, you cannot see my face and live because of the separation that's occurred because of sin. But God places Moses in the cleft of this rock, and we have this beautiful description. Go read it. It's in in Exodus 34 where God declares his name. I am gracious. I am kind. I am compassionate. I am merciful. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. Again, all of this incredible revelation about who God is. But here, Moses was restricted from seeing the face of God. We're told in Isaiah chapter 6 that Isaiah says that he saw the face of God, and his response is, woe is me. Again, given a very specific vision, a very specific protection in the imagery that God provided to Isaiah in that circumstance. We are told that it is this hope that you will one day see God face to face. John tells us in 1 John that it's, that is the hope that helps to purify your soul today. There's, there's, a, there's a yearning. The, the New Testament talks about we don't, we don't desire to be unclothed. We desire to be further clothed in the righteousness of God. We yearn to be free from sin. We yearn to be free from all that we know that we still wrestle with that stands in opposition to our almighty God. I agree with you, Lord, but I don't find it within myself to be able to obey you, right? This war that's within that Paul describes in Romans chapter 7. And the victory is the Holy Spirit that is in us today that enables us to see him and to know him. But there's coming a day in all of its fullness where you, you are going to look into the face of the being who created you. I have 
No idea what that's going to be like. I love that song. I can only imagine. I can, what, what is that day going to be like? To stare into the face of our God. What a promise. His name is going to be on our foreheads. Again, the Old Testament, uh, the high priest had a crown. And on that crown was the word holiness to the Lord. Whether this is a lovely tattoo or some mark that we'll have on our foreheads, or this is just talking about, um, in, in the Old Testament, we are told that God's word is supposed to be, you know, between the frontlets of our eyes, on our forehead, written on our hands. So there's, there's a, a poetic idea that God's name, his character, will continually be at the forefront of our mind. In all of our sight, in all of our words, in all of our actions, here is the nature and character of God in all of his fullness, whether it's upon us, in us, flowing out of us. What a description. No night, no darkness. You don't need a candle. You don't need a sun. The Lord God himself is light, will be our light, will give us light, and we are going to reign with him for an ever and ever. What a promise. And that really, this concludes the, the major prophecy, what we are told about the future. And I've, I've told you as we've gone through Revelation, that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is unveiling himself. That's partially true. It's been on my mind that as we traveled through all of the things, so turn to, turn to Revelation chapter 1 really quick because there's specific words that are given. Yes, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants, but he says specifically that it's about things which must shortly take place. So it's not only a revelation and an unveiling of Jesus Christ, it is an unveiling of specific things that must take place. And at the time of this revelation, roughly, you know, this is sitting about 60 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, saying that these things must shortly take place, that reality that we have been living in the last days since the moment that Jesus ascended to heaven. So Revelation, yes, it's an unveiling of Jesus, his nature, his character, his will, his plans, and his purposes, but he's given very specific declarations about things that are going to happen, that must happen according to his will. So even though, so this, it's not even though, the why for me of keeping all attention on Jesus is when we as human beings get bogged down in things, that's when we start fighting with each other, and we can't define the things unless we're defining the source of those things. So as Jesus is unveiling future events to us, he's doing it for the very specific intention of calling everybody to himself, and we're going to see that in these last verses, this repetitious um, declaration out of Jesus' mouth, I am coming. And for those of us who have come to him and responded to him, we are told that we are to watch for him. So even as we sit in the future of all, in the, in the information of all of these future things, 
we're told very clearly that there's a whole bunch of things, a bunch of stuff that needs to happen before Jesus comes back, right? Yet at the same time, we are very clearly told that Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night. Nobody knows the day or the hour. We all know and we all understand that Jesus can come back right now. Nothing needs to happen. So how do you sit in both ideas at the same time? And this is where we sit in this whole idea of the rapture, where he is going to seize his church, seize believers before these events. We are told that he can come back for us at any moment, and our understanding is that he is going to come back for his church first. And that the sequence of all of these events, again, we, we hold the outline lightly because it's our understanding, but all of these things that he has revealed, they are going to happen in their sequence, in their order, before he comes back physically to rule and reign for a thousand years on this planet. This is what we've been sitting in as he is unveiling the things. But my, my heart. My focus, my relationship with the Lord, whenever I try and sit in a definition of anything apart from the nature and character of who Jesus is, I always miss. And that's been the, the main heart as we've traveled through all of these descriptions to make sure that we see the revelation of Jesus, that he is revealing himself, what his plans are, what his purposes are, how he's going to wrap this all up, and continually through all of these events, it's all evangelistic. He is proclaiming whoever hears these words, come. We sat in the very beginning of it. There, there's, there's a blessing that is, that is associated with the reading, the hearing, and the keeping of the words of this prophecy that he has given. We are told to hold on to these things. We are told to guard these things. We are told to believe in these things. We are told to hope in these things. We are told to be heavenly-minded and future-minded so that as we follow him today, we're going to keep our mind and our attention on him because he's given us the end. He's given us the hope, he's given us the confidence, and he's given us the warnings. And ultimately, that's how the rest of this is concluding. So Revelation 22.6 says, Then he said to me, this angel, to John, These words, they are faithful and true. We've seen that declaration multiple times. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show, to make known his servants the things which must shortly take place. Jesus' declaration, behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed, favored, fortunate, happy is he or she who keeps, guards, observes, studies, holds on to keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, specifically this scroll, this, this book of Revelation. And we can definitely apply it to all the word of God, Genesis to Revelation. First, what was that, eight? Now I, John, saw and heard these things. And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. The second time, John's overwhelmed. Even this apostle knows better. This angel says to him, see, it's imperative, it's a command. See that you don't do that. The angels, and as we look at one another, 
as, as brothers and sisters, we always need to make sure that we do not exalt anybody to the position of God and to a position of authority that is not theirs. I am your fellow servants of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Listen, this is, this is coming out of the mouth of an angel. I'm your fellow servant. I'm of your brethren, of the prophets, right? Prophecy, proclaiming the word of God. This angel was given the word, and he's gone, and he's proclaimed it in obedience. That's the role of a prophet. And that was John's role as a prophet. Of those who keep the words of this book, knowing and understanding that the angels, they are keeping God's words, God's commands in perfect relationship. And out of this angel's mouth, This needs to be out of your mouth to yourself. It needs to be out of your mouth and encouragement to other human beings. This is a command. Worship God. Don't put your head on the ground in submission and obedience to anything other than the Almighty God. And as he leads you in a submissive and serving relationship to his children and even to his enemies, your head is on the ground before him and him alone. You worship God. Even if nobody else goes with you, you worship him. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal the words of this prophecy, uh, the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand, the season, the occasion, it's at hand. It's just, it's right there. But this is, this is interesting for the angel to tell John not to seal the, the words of this prophecy. And this is why it's interesting. When Daniel is given the words of prophecy, an angel very specifically tells Daniel to seal up the words, the understanding, until the time of the end, Daniel's going to go his way, but those words were not for that culture at that time. Those words were to be sealed up. For John to be given the command, do not let these words be sealed, but let them be, let the scroll be unrolled, let it be read, let it be heard, let it be held onto, let it be observed. This means that these words are for every single Christian for all time. So there are many, if you go study out Revelation, especially in any commentary, There is a a great emphasis that's placed upon the original writer of the document and upon the original audience that is receiving the document. And there is a right place for that teaching and that understanding as we attempt to understand the hearts and what what is God writing to these individuals. You know, the circumstances of Corinth are different than the circumstances of Ephesus that are different, right? There's different times, different cultures, so we we need to understand what's going on. When it comes to this document of Revelation, we are told to hear specifically, by these words being unsealed, they are for all believers at all time. Yes, they were for the individuals who were there in the seven churches in Asia Minor and all of those different communities. These words were absolutely for them. Because this is unsealed, because there's this specific declaration, the words are just as much for you and I today as they were for them. Because what's his heart? Is he only revealing himself to the early church? Is he only proclaiming to the early church the things of the end? Or is he proclaiming to his kids and anybody that's curious about him what the future holds? It's to all, and it's for all. Do not seal up the words of this prophecy. And this is an eternal 
statement, he who is unjust, he who is wrong. And again, this is not a noun. This is a verb, an action. He was unjust. Let him be unjust still. And the let him be in every single one of these as we go through this, these, these are imperative commands. He was unjust. He was wrong. Let him be unjust still. He was filthy. He was defiled. Let him be filthy still. And then there's this hard transition. We all used to be unjust and filthy outside of Jesus Christ. And look what he has made us to be. And we will always be in his presence. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. From unjust to righteous, from filthy to holy, This is a forever statement for all eternity. Those who have been cast into the lake of fire will continually be unjust and filthy. Those who abide in the presence of the Almighty God shall be righteous and holy. 12, behold, again, I am coming quickly. And the behold, it's an imperative command out of the mouth of Jesus for you right now. Jesus is saying to you, I am coming coming quickly. My reward is with me, singular, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed, the final blessing, there's seven of them in Revelation. Blessed are those who do his commandments, some of your, of your translations will say, blessed are those who wash their robes. And that comes from chapter 7, verse 14. When you look at both of those phrases in the Greek, they sound extremely similar. That is the reason for the difference of the translations. And hold on to that because we're going to come back to it in a minute. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right, the authority to the tree of life and may enter through the gates of the city. But outside, we sat through a list last week of all those who are outside. This, uh, the lists are absolutely identical, except the first word. Last week, we dealt with coward. Here, it identifies these people as dogs. But the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, murderers, idolaters, and whoever loves and practices a lie. Verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. You sit in a bright morning star, comes out of Numbers chapter 24. You can go read that there, the, this title for the Messiah, the root and offspring of David, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 9, 11. These are all titles for the Messiah that Jesus is claiming for himself for all eternity. And here's the major declaration of all of Revelation, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and the bride, the church, the body of Christ, say to everyone, Come. I love, I love that. Just come and see. Come, come has the idea. Come to, come and read his words. Come and let's, let's talk about what's 
real and what's not real. Come, let's, let's talk about life. Come, let, let us, let us, let's see Jesus. Let's sit at his feet. Come, let's, let's serve him. Come, let's worship. Come, let's adore. Come, there's a constant call. Jesus is constantly calling you to follow him. Yes, he, he calls me every single day. Blake, come on. Let's go about our day. It looks different than my plans and purposes every single day, but there he is with me, leading me. Come. And what's, what's beautiful about this call is it's to every single human being. There is, this, is, this is not a, hey, you know what? You need to uh, get a haircut. You need to take those earrings out. You need to put on, you need to put on your suit. You need to come to our, our new believer class for a little bit. You need to go through our confirmation class. Um, you know, once, once you've gone through that, that six weeks, then uh, maybe we'll let you get baptized. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll let you serve. Um, maybe we'll let you be, um, you know, do this and do that. You know, just all this man stuff. It's not the heart of God. You come as you are right now. In the name of Jesus Christ, you have free access to the throne of God. There is not a man or woman that can stand in your way. There is not a behavior that you are actively engaged in that will keep you away. The only thing that prevents you from coming to the throne of your God who made you is you. It's not something that somebody has done to you. It's not the devil. It's not the culture. Nothing keeps you from the throne of God other than your own personal choice. And every moment of every day for all eternity, you have your God's hand. Come on. Come spend some time with me. Let me speak to you. Let me love you. Let me clean you. Let me give you some work to do. Let me work in you and through you. Let me reveal myself to you. Let me speak my wonderful promises to you. Come. The Holy Spirit of God, Jesus your Savior, God the Father, and the church, the body of Christ, imitates his words Come on. I love it. Come. Let him who hears. Did you hear any of what I've said for the last five minutes? Let him who hears. Come. Are you thirsty? Come. I love, look at this. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Do you need the grace of God? Do you need God to give to you? Are you in desperate need, desperate poverty, desperate want? I am. God, give me your grace. I come to you for your grace. I come to you for your mercy. Praise you, almighty God, for your patience with me. Thank you for your love. This is where true worship pours out of our hearts, gratitude, Anybody who desires. God, 
keep me, my mouth, my personality, my actions from ever being a hindrance from anybody ever coming and taking the water of life freely. A warning here in verse 18, and this is why I said I was going to get back to this. Uh, well, uh, the verse 14 is, is the real words of the original prophecy, blessed are those who do his commandments, or is it blessed are those who wash their robes? Why is, why is there a difference? Listen to the warning. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, specifically Revelation, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues, the blows, the strikes that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this, the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Pretty stern warning not to add or take away. As I flip through Revelation and I just look at the, my little footnotes that I have in my translation there's a lot of differences. We call them textual variances in the Bible. There's a lot of them in Revelation as you sit in the scholarship associated with ancient Greek texts. Um, when you flip through the rest of your Bible, if you have any footnotes going on whatsoever, there, you know, there's some pretty much on every page. But when I get into Revelation, there's a bunch. Because people have added and taken away from the words of this prophecy since the very beginning. Because people don't like what it says. People try and change it. They try and change their meetings. But how can we be sure that the words that we have before us, that they're the actual words of the prophecy that God gave? Well, the, the handle on that is when you sit in the true scholarship of the variation that are in text, the variations are very narrow. They're small. And for something as simple is there a blessing for those of you who do his commandments? Is that, is that a true statement out of the word of God? Absolutely. Even if it's not the true words, uh, the original words or the words of this prophecy, you can find that the exact statement in another place in God's word, that we are blessed, we are favored by doing his commands, making, producing the results of his commands is the words. At the same time, is there a blessing for washing your robes your garments and the blood of the lamb. Absolutely, Revelation 7:14 has already revealed that description. So both are true. Neither one of them changes the meaning of the prophecy that we've been given. So as we can sit in the text from Genesis to Revelation, you can be confident that God has preserved his word for all generations, and it's an awesome promise to sit in. At the same time, it's um, as I teach the word of God, how dare I take away from God's words as I communicate and as I teach? How dare I add something to his words to have God say something that he never said? You see the, and you hear the warning? Again, there, there's a warning that we need to sit in. This warning is very specifically for this prophecy, but we can apply it to all the word of God for sure. Final words. He who testifies to these things, who's he who is testifying? Jesus himself. Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So when Jesus keeps telling you that he's coming quickly, what do you say? Well, not only amen. It's kind of, I, okay, I, I'm, I am not being irreverent here. 
But there is a part of me that wants to say with Jesus, would you just get on with it? Again, like I said, I'm not being irreverent. Let his will be done. I praise God that he has waited for my creation and my salvation. And I've told you multiple times, as far as I am concerned, Jesus can wait another thousand years to come back. I'm okay with that because that means more souls in his kingdom for all eternity. He can, he can, he can wait. But when I hear this, it's Lord. And this is, a, this is the end of 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 16 where you have this, it's an Aramaic word, Maranatha. Oh, Lord, come. It's the cry of our heart. Even, so, even though all of this has to happen, even so, Jesus, come. I know that you can come right now. At the same time, I know that you can hold off. Our hearts cry with our brothers and sisters of all generations. Come, Lord Jesus. Final statement. Guess what the very last word of the Old Testament is? Come on, one guess. Amen. No, curse. The very last sentence of the prophecy of Malachi, the last words of the Old Testament, the last words out of the mouth of God through a prophet for 400, the 400 years prior to him sending his son is lest I strike the earth with a curse. And what are the last words here in Revelation? The grace, the love, the favor, the gifts, all the attributes of God be unto you for all generations. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen and amen. Come on up, worship team. Heavenly Father, we love you tremendously. We give you great thanks for your words. The words of this prophecy. Jesus, as you have revealed yourself, as you have revealed warnings and promises to the churches, as you have revealed things that must take place and that they must take place shortly, I'm asking that you'd enable us, Lord, to to know these words, to understand these words, to hold on to them, to keep them, trusting that you're the source of each one of them. We just read that it's you, the one who is coming quickly. You are the one who is bearing testimony that each one of these words is faithful and true. They are not false. They are true. They are not dark. They They are light. They are not bad. They are good. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you have kept me from sin, Lord. So I've sat in the conversation about what it is that you've saved me from. Even in all of my stupidity, Lord, you still hindered me and prevented me from. From remaining cursed. But you have blessed me and you have favored me. And you've brought happiness and joy and peace and rest and mercy and grace your compassionate love into my life Lord I see you I hear you I 
worship you. May you shine your light brightly in each one of our minds and our lives, Lord. May we hold on to your promises for the future. May we rest in confidence that you're here with us today. You were good, you were gracious, and you were coming. Come quickly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.